welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, James and I chat with Joseph D. Long from Sushi. We talk about working with anonymous contributors, the evolution of the Sushi project from a fork of Uniswap to a full-fledged ecosystem of products. We also talk about the recently discovered vulnerability in the MISO contracts, how this was caught and mitigated, and what's next for the project. But before we start in, I want to highlight something for job seekers in the space. If you're looking for a job, you want to jump into the ZK world, the next ZK Jobs Fair is happening on September 30th. This will be our fourth. So we host these on gather.town and they're an awesome way to get to know the teams that are hiring in a very casual, social, virtual space. So if you're looking for your next job, be sure to get your application in. I've added the link in the show notes. And for potential hiring teams, we still have some booths available. So do get in touch by emailing sponsorships at zeroknowledge.fm. In general, I recommend everyone checks out the new website, It's been up for now two weeks, and I'm pretty excited about it, and the updated jobs board. I would also like to thank this week's sponsor, Centrifuge, a real-world DeFi project. Centrifuge puts real-world assets on the blockchain, allowing issuers to get liquidity on their assets and investors to make a safe, stable yield in the volatile crypto world. It's built on Substrate, and so Centrifuge also is bridging the Ethereum and Polkadot worlds. And speaking of jobs in the space, Centrifuge is currently hiring for a number of positions. This includes senior Rust engineers, senior full stack engineers, security and DevOps engineers, as well as a general counsel. Head over to centrifuge.io slash careers to learn more. So thanks again, Centrifuge. Now here is our episode all about sushi. So today I'm sitting with James and Joe DeLong from SushiSwap. Welcome to the show, Joe. Cool. Thanks for having me. Hey, James. Hey, Anna. It's good to be back. <laughs> Glad to have you back. So Joseph, Joe, this is the first time that we have you on the show, but it's not the first time that we've been talking about SushiSwap on the show. Last year, right after SushiSwap first launched and actually right before Uniswap token launched, like in that little window, we did this episode, this two-parter, three-parter rather, with Hasu and Tarun. And uh, it's a really cool episode, maybe just the primer, that early, you know, story of Sushi Swap. So I'll put that in the show notes. But I'm so happy to have you on the show because I feel like you're going to be able to fill me in on like what's mm. happened in this crazy project since then. But before we do that, let's hear a little bit about you. You've been in blockchain a lot longer than just your work with SushiSwap. I've, I've known you from conferences maybe for like three years. Mm-hmm. So what were you doing before Sushi? Um, before Sushi, I was doing Ethereum 2 research for consensus. We had built out a team called TXRX Research. I was working on cross-shard transactions, research regarding that, and the team was working on a smattering of, of research topics that pertain to E2. Before that, I was helping build the Teku client, which is the Java implementation of the E2 client uh, built by Consensus. All right. Were you working with Ben, actually? Yep. Yep. Ben almost okay. fired me like a million times. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's awesome. But I was like, got a little crazy on Twitter a few times. Like, 
once in particular with Charles Hodgkinson and then another time with some other people. <laughs> well, uh, getting crazy on Twitter is part of the job now, right? Feels like yeah. it. Yeah. I enjoy it. What kind of made you step away from that? Like that's an exciting field of research. Like what made you decide to move more towards like a, a DAP or DEX? I've seen a lot of people make this jump from protocols to DAPs. I feel like working on a working on protocols is similar to maybe doing like military service or something, right? It's like something that's not incredibly glamorous, but is like something necessary, and the risk reward is, you know, relatively balanced, <laughs> relatively low. Um, okay. Yeah, and so like um, Maki asked me to join Sushi, and I had been kind of participating in all this like DeFi summer stuff and. It, it intrigued me to get into DeFi, especially, you know, as James will know, this mashup of kind of where DeFi space meets protocols is pretty interesting as well. Mm. When was that? Like you weren't part of this first team that we were talking about last year on the show, I don't think. So yeah, at what point did you did you start to think you might be joining? Yeah, it was, um, Maki called me December 27th and I was with my family, uh, my extended family for like, you know, around Christmas time, we were in like an Airbnb all together. And I kind of liked it. It's like kind of sexy. It's a little risk on, you know, and I had been a sushi farmer supporter community member. And I had talked to Maki a bit and respected his, his leadership style and work. And I thought that it would be a great opportunity. What was sushi at that time? Like in December, maybe a little backstory about it too. Like it had it had arrived as this fork clone of Uniswap, had at some point like gathered a lot of the liquidity, and then there was like Uniswap launched a token, liquidity was moving back and forth. Like that's where I know the story. That's that's like what we covered. I actually don't know anything since then. So yeah, what what was happening maybe from that point to when you joined? Sure. I think that that's probably a good place to pick up because kind of the, this fork novelty had worn off, but the team had huge potential. We have like, this, this is not biased in any way. We have the best like development team of, of any protocol out there right now. Um, and when I arrived, we had really solid team at that time as well. And really, I saw like a lot of potential and just wanted to help in professionalizing the organization, helping with architectural direction, but also um, moving it from kind of like a ragtag team of like outlaws to, you know, <laughs> uh, like a legit DeFi project. How big was the team when you joined? Um, six. Okay. How big is it now? Uh, it's like 24. Okay, cool. All that is like, most of it is like organizational structure. They kind of already had a pretty good thing going, and I just wanted to enhance that. And I think we have been doing pretty good ever since. We still kind of lag behind in some of our hiring. I'd like to be hiring maybe at least 12 more developers across protocols, front-end, smart contract developers. But yeah, I think we're in a really good place right now. That's a lot of developers. How do you work on like project management with a distributed team of, you know, some semi-anonymous people? Mm. Yeah, there, there are some challenges, I would say, particularly like ownership of like repos and what kind of access do you give somebody? 
But once they're on core, there's a relatively high amount of trust that we're not going to kind of get like poison pill commits or anything. And so there's like a, a huge amount of trust. Um, we kind of do like, we'll do team of team style um, development. For instance, in Trident, we have a smart contracts team. We have people working on front end design. We have people front, working on front end implementation. We have people working on the routing engine and they're all kind of broken up into teams, but just kind of cross communicate in between each other. Mm-hmm. Are there a lot of anonymous, like Mackie, who you mentioned there is kind of an anonymous character online. Do you know your teammates or do you actually work in like an anonymous state together? One of them, uh, <laughs> one of them actually told me, I, I thought he gave me his real name. And one of them just told me is like, is like, it's a made up name. Uh-huh. And I was like, of course, <laughs> of course, it's a made up name. Chester LaCroix. How could I not? <laughs> Sounds like the name of a jewel thief, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's good. So yeah, but do you know your teammates? For the most part, yeah. Okay. Not as well as you might think, though. Yeah, there are a few anons. <laughs> um, there are a few like pseudo anons, I would say. What would you use then to kind of gauge that trust? Like maybe you're using a different metric than like seeing their face, knowing their name. What is it then? Oh yeah, I, I talked about this a few times. Is like this, like what real professionalism is. Is real professionalism is not suit and tie or, you know, having a nice email signature, real professionalism is committing to doing something and then doing it, being accountable for your actions, being a good coworker, being a good leader, being good follower, that sort of stuff. I think that is real professionalism. And I think that trust is built up on a basis of exhibition of real professionalism. Do you use, though, like any back kind of like maybe previous commits, something like looking at their GitHub or any of the other behavior maybe you saw, especially when you're thinking of like hiring someone who you will never like you won't know their name, you won't be able to check their CV necessarily? What we'll do, unless it's somebody who's been working with the team already, we'll typically kind of like pick the best people that we've been working with to come join core. If we have a need that we really need to fill, what we'll do is we will find someone who fits the role, approach them and ask them to kind of commit either part-time or full-time for a month. Um, and then we just kind of evaluate their performance. This is a great system, but it also is terrible for the person who is like maybe has another job or has to live a month, you know, not knowing that somebody's going to commit to them. Mm-hmm. And so I would like implore the world to find a better system than that because it's hard to judge people that way. But don't you feel like when you're hiring, James, you probably like you're taking a risk. You're going to put in time and effort and you you're sort of it's like both sides are constantly trying to mitigate the risk they're taking. You know, working in this space at all is very risk on. Uh, We're all you know doing extremely risky things that might not work out all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Taking a risk on hiring someone generally is one of the safer things we can do. The big risks that I feel like I'm taking, and I don't know if this is the same for you, Joe, is, is this product going to hit the market and are people going to use it? Yeah, I think that's a risk. Like, especially with Kashi, we found that we were like, everybody's going to use Kashi right away. And like, it took us, you know, two or three weeks, even with rewards to get $10 million in TBL on Kashi, Mm. maybe like one, two weeks. And is Kashi a uh, lending market? Yeah, it's an isolated lending market. So you can, just the way that you design AMM pools now, I pick token A and token B. 
I can do the same for a lending market. I can pick my lending token and my collateralization token. Mm. Would you only release this each time as like a single pair? Mm, uh, yeah, but but you can design any pair that you want, right? So okay. it's kind of like a permissionless system where you can design those pools. And the reason that we do that is where you have pooled lending, like on Aave or Compound, there's an inherent risk of any particular, like essentially by by lending or borrowing, you're taking on the entire risk of any individual token that's in the platform. Because if there was a failure to liquidate, the protocol itself becomes insolvent. And by doing risk-isolated lending, essentially that risk is isolated to that individual lending pair. Mm-hmm. So if you want to play it out, you have compound you know, at one end of the spectrum where all of the tokens are in the same pool. Uh, you have Rari kind of in the middle with a bunch of different pools with different token combinations. And Kashi is the other end where each pool has exactly two tokens. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And permissionless too. So you can just create your own pools, which is great for, you know, betting against new tokens. Who uses it? Like, is it teams that would deploy this themselves or is it individuals deploying it within an interface that you've created? Uh, I think it's more individuals. We have had some teams like the Fay team and the Rye team. Reflexor Labs have uh, have approached us and specifically wanted to do lending markets. Our, our plan long-term is to basically for, for each lending market, we need to integrate an Oracle and that Oracle allows you to tell when to do liquidations and kind of like the utilization rate, et cetera, to determine when, what kind of like elastic rates you charge for the lend. So right now we have Chainlink integration. We would like to enhance that. We had started, but there was a really bad user experience to integrate TWAP oracles. Mm-hmm. But generally that's the direction that we're headed is so that kind of, as long as there is a um, an AMM pool, you can lend against something or you can borrow against something. So I always hear like chain link integrations, mm-hmm. but I don't know what that means. Sure. Is that like you're pulling or their Oracle data mm-hmm. somehow? That's that right. you've decided to, but where where do they get their Oracle data? F- like, why would you trust their data more than your? I don't know, like something else. So this is um this is a, a kind of like a, out of simplicity. TWAPs require uh, two snapshots and uh, Chainlink will kind of provide a price feed. And so we're relying on like this kind of centralized like authority um, to say, you know, what the price of token A or token B is long term. We want it to be kind of like entirely permissionless. So it's just looking at other AMM markets. But there are also other like security considerations, right? Like depth of liquidity, volatility that we can't really get a good read on on chain, whereas like Chainlink kind of like handles much of that. They kind of say the market size is this and there's a good enough liquidity. So we're going to provide a a price feed. But the other way where we're going to use like some TWAP oracles as well to create markets has like positives and negatives. The positive is that like I can create any market that has an AMM pool. The negative is, is that like it can get really degenerate really fast. (laughs) You had mentioned something a little earlier in this episode as well, Trident, but I don't know what that is either. So, and I know that there's like a few products that you've created this year. So maybe we can go through some of them. Maybe Trident's not a product. Actually, I, I literally have no idea what that is. No, but. that's that's perfect. I'm glad you asked. Okay. Yeah, this is like actually some like critique that um, DC Investor made the other day. Like we have, we get too cute with the names and that, and that like that becomes complicated. You know, if you're talking about an iPod or an iPad, like people are going to learn those terms. But for like 
esoteric mm-hmm. like lending markets or or capital markets it's kind of like a little bit like i don't know that you could stay cute with the names but um so we've built a few things this year mainly bento is like kind of our, our like i would say our major development bento is a strategy vault that is also an application host and so tokens come into bento box those tokens are taken and exercised in strategies and then a virtual balance is made on top available for applications that you can build like Kashi, like Trident, etc. When you say strategy vault, are you thinking, is that like yearn strategies? Is it sort of similar to the idea that like you put money in and behind the scenes, like there's all sorts of mechanisms happening with your funds. You don't have to know about it. You don't care about gas prices. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean when you say strategy vault? Totally. Yeah. So, so that it goes into the vault and then there are strategies that are attached to it. Right now we only have a compound strategy. Um, but we're adding an Ave one and we're um, adding like we're, we're integrating with urine more deeply as well. But basically those tokens that you deposited into Bento are then like getting exercised in the best yields. And so um, up to 80% underlying of any particular tokens. And so this allows us to build applications on top that have access to a virtual balance, which is a claimed tokens underlying. So Kashi, well, maybe like you, you deposit your collateral and that collateral isn't being used. That collateral is actually taken and being used in a, in a strategy underneath. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you said other protocols could also be built on top of Bento. So it's mm-hmm. Kashi was this two, like the just a very narrow lending, two sides. Yeah, isolated what, lending. Like yep. Two tokens. Yep. Isolated lending, sorry. Yeah. But what else could be built on that? Um, so we, we built our next AMM, uh, Trident, on, on top. Ah, um, okay, there we yeah. go. There's Trident. Yeah, okay, so cool. Trident is another application on Bento Box. And um, we built a lot of different features into this. But like, consider this, right? Uh, I'm an LP. I'm an LP on Sushi right now, and we're using kind of V2 contracts. And my underlying collateral is only used when a swap happens, and, and then never all at once. So if you think of like the uh, capital inefficiency of that, say I have 50 markets with ETH in it, and in terms of vol, in like let's say TVL for ETH is a billion dollars, like in dollars for that ETH. At any moment, there are probably $20 million worth of swaps actually occurring. And so $880 million of that ETH is, no, sorry, $980 million (laughs) of that ETH is, math is hard, is is being underutilized. And so that Mm. up to 80%, so we would take 800 million of that underlying ETH, and that would get invested into a strategy. And then the other 20% would be made available as like cash on hand for the swaps that are occurring. Hmm. But the swap pool would behave as if it had the entire amount? Exactly. Uh, So it would give you the lower market impact implied by the higher amount, Mm -hmm. but it would only have immediate access to a small proportion of that. The rest is invested earning returns. Yes, but if you think about it, if you spread it across the entirety of the market, Right. The way that we had engineered Bento Box, it kind of like coalesces at the base layer. And so if you think about it in the entirety of the market, right, let's say that we have a billion in TVL of ETH, right? And then there are 800 million invested. How many trades are going to happen that occur that are going to be more than $200 million in ETH? Right. It's like 
mm-hmm. the price impacts would blow you out anyway. And so like that, that 20% is, is immediately available. And then once it's been withdrawn, like, let's say that I, I am a crazy whale and I have 250 million um, in ETH locked in Bento and I trade for 200 million, then rebalance is called onto the strategy and that returns the, another 20%. And it kind of creates this inverse log curve of withdrawal. And so I can do, I can do 200 million and then like whatever the next 20% comes back. And then I could do, I can withdraw my 50 million. Mm-hmm. So you may have to wait a little while until like compound has the liquidity to give you that cash back, but you're going to get your money back relatively quickly. Um, like in almost a hundred percent of the cases, you will be able to have access your money instantaneously. There, there are only a very like narrow set of circumstances and narrow set of whales who will not be able to access that instantaneously. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not checking around a few hundred million dollars on sushi swap <laughs> this week. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Me either, man. Well, we were when <laughs> with the uh, miso, you know, but yeah. Huh? Oh, okay. So here's another one. Miso. Yeah. You just mentioned another Damn thing. It. They all, they tend to have themes, although what is Trident? Like Kashi Bento. Okay. Yeah, the, the naming is miso. all off there. But Trident? Yeah, yeah. Is it like the gum? Or is it like <laughs> yeah, the, the fork? <laughs> that, exactly. You, you, you fell onto it, right? Like, so the, okay. we got a lot of shit um, for being a fork, like a lot of shit. Uh-huh. And, and kind of like we spend a lot, of our t- a lot of our time like getting bullied on Twitter <laughs> about being a fork by like people who are bag holders of other projects. And so we just decided to kind of like lean into the fork narrative um, as a joke. And Crypto Cobain had kind of, uh, I don't know, he, he kind of like made this joke that like the Trident is a fork if you think about it. Yeah. And so we kind of like thought that was going to be a great name for the new protocol. Trident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is Trident a three-pronged approach though? Are there are there three strategy prongs to Trident or is it just about the fork? The metaphor stopped somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's about a fork, right? But like... Um, so we, we built Trident as a, um, as kind of like an AMM factory and all of our uh, pools, uh, conform to an iPool interface. So you can implement any pool type that you want and add it to the master deployer. And then now we can route to it. So you could have several different types of pools following the same interface, Mm -hmm. uh, something that's more like the traditional Uniswap pool or something more like a curve pool or a balancer pool. So we built four uh, different types. Hmm. Um, we built like a V2, like or like standard traditional constant product pools, and we built a concentrated liquidity as well. That's like uh, comparable to V3 in some senses. We also built a stable swap pool that permissionlessly allows you to add up to 32 pairs. So if you want to go from Dai to USDC, like something like that, that's a stable swap. Ren BTC to WBTC, that's a stable swap where they're like they're, the uh, equivalent exchange is expected not to have a huge like price differential. Mm-hmm. And that's similar to like curve and saddle. Yep, exactly. And then uh, weighted pools. And we built all those. Uh, weighted pools would be similar to balancer. That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to figure out all the like analogs here that can compare things to to understand. Sure, sure. You, you, you got to understand that, like, I want to keep everyone's name out of my mouth, you know? 
Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, lean, I'll say them for you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. 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 Thank you. <laughs> um, so Trident, Trident. We also built this uh, routing engine called Tines, and Tines allows us to go kind of like multi route and multi hop um, nested. And so since we have like these different pools that different tokens succeed at, for instance, stables um, tend to succeed at these stable swap pools. Shit coins tend to do really well in like V2 style pools. Majors tend, blue chips tend to do really well in V3 style pools. We wanted to be able to have the ability to kind of compose that um, in such a way that would give you best prices. Uh, so the benefit of the iPool interface is that the Tynes routing engine can, you know, look at each pool, use the same interface to access them and find the best route across many different types of pools. Mm-hmm. And it takes into consideration price impacts, gas, map topology. It's a uh, pretty rad. Oh, fees too, of course. Very cool. Uh, so the Tynes is, you know, roughly equivalent to like all of these other DEX aggregators, but it works within the Trident ecosystem. Yeah, totally. And it's G- it's GPL3. So if anybody wants to fork it and use it for their DEX ag or something else, like we're happy to see that as well. Great. All right, so now Miso? Yeah, Miso is our IDO platform. It's like a token launcher platform. Um, okay. And what does IDO stand for? Hmm. Uh, <laughs> good question. <laughs> Investment. Initial, initial, oh, initial decentralized offering, maybe? Oh, hmm. probably. That's a, like... Dex I've, offering? I've only ever heard it um, as a initial Dex initial offering. Initial Dex okay. offering. Right. There, oh, we go. there we go. One. I just I just googled this. It's initial Dex <laughs> offering. Yeah, that's that's okay. what they call these platforms. I actually hadn't even ever thought about it, but like you know, Polka Starter, etc. There are other. Um, uh-huh. And this is a, a token launcher platform that we built that allows you to do Dutch batch. You know, just like a regular token sale. And it's like we don't take anything up front. It's completely free. You just can launch your token from there. Right now, we're kind of like in a gated launch phase, but the ideal long term, if we can figure this out, is to have it be completely permissionless. Very cool. Is there any equivalent to this in Uniswap? Like, I know tokens were launching themselves in Uniswap, kind of. No. They don't do this. That's yeah. they, You wouldn't call it an IDO launching there. Yeah, no. They don't have an IDO platform like we're kind of like expanding horizontally and I don't necessarily see uh, Uniswap as our competition. Okay. That was actually a question that I had. I, 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 I know that there's more products, so we won't move away from that. But that was actually a question of like nowadays, a year later, I mean, it sounds like it's very, very different from Uniswap. I guess you don't consider them competitors, but do you still get a lot of comparisons? Yeah, Totally. And that's that's fine, right? And I think Uniswap sees us as competitors as well, but we really just want to have kind of like the best DeFi experience for everyone with the best access to lending and swapping and tokens that are being launched. I mean, we had to stay competitive on the basis of like how our pools were. Um, the, just like the price impacts were too high. Capital efficiency was too low, but we're going to see a, a 2x capital efficiency over Uniswap uh, if not more, depending on like what the rates on the strategies are. Mm-hmm. You know, you said a little earlier that you were horizontally uh, expanding. You're moving out into different lines of business. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, But it kind of feels like you're looking to assist with the entire token lifestyle, kind of go with a vertical expansion. You know, you're starting with MISO for IDOs, uh, building liquidity in the swap pools and trident pools, and moving into vaults and lending for the same tokens. Are you trying to like build out to get the entire life cycle of new tokens? Yeah, I think so. Um, we, we have been working on some other like interfaces that allow you to, if you're launching a token, to kind of like have like a Shopify-like experience. For the like token launcher, it's like, I have to launch my tokens. Maybe I want to have incentivized pools. I need to launch pools. I kind of like want to manage that. I want to manage a treasury. Those are the kind of uh, problems that we're approaching and we'll we'll have those more deeply integrated, I think, post Trident launch. Interesting. Let's finish with the products that you have, because I know I have at least one more on this list, which is like X, X Sushi. Mm-hmm. Is that one of yours? Would you consider that a product? Um, yes, uh, it's a very early one. Like you take sushi and you stake it into X Sushi, which has kind of a one to one exchange. Um, each time that harvest is called on the fees uh, that were collected from the AMM, they're collected and then swapped for sushi and then deposited into like this X sushi contract. And so you deposit sushi and you essentially can withdraw more sushi. It's not like a flash loan though. No. Uh, I mean, we have, <laughs> we have flash loans too. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! What do you call them? <laughs> the, uh, we just call them flash loans, but they're on bento box. Okay. Can, <laughs> okay. <yeah>. Okay. <laughs> we we have we have a lot of products. I think that is a lot of products. We talked about growing the team a little earlier. How many of these products existed last December when you joined, uh, and how many of them were built out by new team members, and how many were built out by outside contributors and then adopted into Sushi? So we had Bento, Kashi, and Miso. Those were in the pipeline, so to speak. Bento and Kashi were co-development between Sushi and Boring Crypto. And uh, Miso was a co-development with Chef Gonpachi. But really, it took a lot to get those across the line. I think the initial estimates for Bento and Kashi was November. And I joined in January and they weren't done and we weren't done until like March. Yeah. And then Miso was just really launched in May. So maybe like five or six month differential from what we thought. But Trident um, is kind of like an all new design. And I feel like a majority of the Trident team has been hired after the fact, after um, that initial team. We have working on it. We have Mudit, Sarong, Gasper. Kino, David, like, do we have, yeah, we have a decent sized team that were not there before. So when you described your role as uh, professionalizing the team and, you know, adding structure, I guess a lot of that was taking these products that were in the pipeline and making sure that they get across the finish line and out into the world. Is that about right? Um, no, for like professionalizing, I just mean like kind of helping to encourage a work environment where it would be because i've been at crypto startups there are a lot of shitty ones out there um (laughs) and in terms of like toxic environments that's something that i i focus a lot on in my life is once you create a toxic environment 
let's say that there starts to be an overactive amount of misogyny or a sort of like HR problems, you can create like a really bad culture. And we, they didn't have that problem, by the way. I'm just saying like kind of helping guide them to a place where they could have a collaborative culture that was like what I would deem more professional. Just make it a regular business, right? Like why does it have to be some Dow? blah, blah, blah. Just like we've been focusing on the same human problems for like the last, like, you know, the first cuneiform uh, letter is about somebody complaining about the quality of copper uh, of like a supplier that paid it to him. Right. Like these are the same problems that we've been dealing with since the beginning of humanity. And so just like, because we're a DAO doesn't mean that you can act crazy, right? (laughs) Being a DAO just means we're more like um, a decentralized company. Mm-hmm. So your your opinion here is it you know it seems like you're saying that we don't need to throw away ten thousand years of human experience in order to uh, work on cool decentralized things. Yeah, totally. And it also sounds like just because we're at the cutting edge of something doesn't give us the right to be assholes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like cowboy. It's like cowboys. You're like you want to you want to, you know, shoot the guns and be bad. Mm-hmm. But- yeah, but I think we're all just assholes for fun. <laughs> <laughs> like that I mean this is like this touch is actually something really close to me. It's like if you look at the like let's say the Ethereum Foundation, for example, like how many of those like early founders like Vitalik and how many of them were like Charlie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like trying to find a way. I was waiting to see who yeah. he's going to say. Yeah. <laughs> Which one yeah. do you pick? Yeah. It's like. <laughs> Who's oh, on the other side? There are so many side. choices though. But just, yeah. Just because we're out there on the edge doesn't mean that we can't act normal. We should like, we should treat the people that we're working with the same way that we would treat a coworker. The, the idea that we're just not in the same like dimly lit, like fluorescent building doesn't mean anything. Mm. Mm-hmm. You, you think we've gone and uh, thrown the baby out with the bathwater on this one. Yeah, totally. I, I think I agree with that. So I one thing, Joe, is there any other products that we did not cover so far? You said there's a lot. Oh, there's Show You. Show You is an NFT platform we've been working on. <gasps> yeah. Ooh, I actually wanted, I had a little NFT question coming up. So maybe we can explore that. One of our uh, developers kind of like wanted to work on on an NFT platform, and so they kind of like applied for a grant and got one, and um, they're currently building it out. I think we're going to see early alpha next next month sometime, and yeah, that is, that's going to be great. Like creating, swapping a good space for artists just all around. This past week, as we're recording it, Sushi was in the was in the news, the crypto news again, but not for the fork and not for product releases, but for a a found vulnerability. I think this episode will only come out in two weeks. And I know this is quite fresh for you, but I would love to hear kind of well, I actually I want to understand like which product, first of all, was this in and what was it exactly? So it was in MISO, which is our uh, IDO platform, our token launcher platform. And this occurred during the BitDAO sale. So I see. Yeah, BitDAO sale sold 350 million USD worth of um, BitDAO tokens. And that was what was at risk. Luckily, I get a DM from Dan Robinson, shout out, that says you up. 
And then I got another one from uh, Georgios from Paradigm. And like, keep in mind, this is on the heels of me just like absolutely publicly eviscerating them for what I I deem to be self-dealing for Paradigm and and one of their L2 platforms. Um, And so, yeah, like fate loves irony. Uh, of course, and so uh, these are the folks that were going to save you. You didn't know, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So what happened? Um, I, I think I, it gets a bit wild on Twitter. I think, um, but yeah. So they they messaged me, and uh, Sam, um, Sam CZ Sun has found a specific vulnerability in which our message dot value can be utilized more than once using one of our batching methods. Like this is why everybody says use weth and not f. <laughs> The reason being is that we have a uniform interface if we're all using ERC-20. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, it does not. And so message.value, you make a deposit, and message.value can be used multiple times. And that would be great. It actually wouldn't matter, right? They could like they could buy a bunch of the token, and it, they would just be stupid. But BitDAO would just issue a new token and say, whatever, sorry. like Because this is an initial launch, so like... We're not talking about something that is already like entrenched, but um, we also had a refund method that allows you if you overcommit to withdraw. And so you could overcommit like the entirety of the ETH increasing your balance and then you could withdraw at the end. And this even could go after the auction was closed uh, before the auction was finalized. Uh, So the net effect is that you could steal the whole proceeds of the auction? Yes. Wow. Would you have had to do this in batches or could you do this in like one or two? Is this like a funneling? Is it you have to deposit, take out, deposit, take take out? Or is it like? You could have done it atomically. Yeah. Like as long as you were inside the gas limit. Wow. Yeah. Pretty pretty much sucks. Yeah. That was a pretty stressful day. But it didn't happen, right? right? Like this, what you're telling is it's a, it's a vulnerability, not a exploit. Right. So. Yeah. All the funds were safe, but like. The, the thing is about like vulnerabilities is like it's information asymmetry. It's like if that information is to get out, the fact that anybody knows it, right? Like mm-hmm. somebody discovered it and then they, they approached us. But the fact that like if there's any information leak on that, like it could be exploited. And so we're kind of like sweating and looking through like mitigation efforts are uh, with help from like our partners at Immunify and, um, paradigm and so we're like looking at mitigation methods one of the ways that we could have done it first one was just buy the rest of the round right and call it a day um, and then have them finalize Uh, the other strategy was a white hat attack where we become the admin for the auction we take a flash loan to commit the entirety of the remaining then finalize the auction and this is a great strategy, I think. It's like a nice happy medium. There are problems with like accounting that we need to sort out in the end. But the, the problem is, is the information asymmetry still is we need to get admin from BitDAO. And you don't want BitDAO to know about the vulnerability. No, we don't we don't mind that they know about the vulnerability, but we want to wait till the absolute because like people don't know how to deal with these situations. We want to wait till the absolute last moment to reduce the probability of information leakage. So we build out this white hack, takes about two hours. Then we approach BitDAO and they say, 
mm, we don't like this approach. We would just like to um, ask some people who are going to contribute to this auction to uh, like who are already planning on like participating to participate now. And then we will cover the maximum because Dutch auctions end um, once you reach like a, a maximum price. They will pay to the maximum price and then they will call finalize on the auction. And that's what they did. They put it together. Bitda was great. They did it in like, I want to say 20 minutes, something like that. Like they got the commitments together, had the committers commit and then finalize the auction like very quickly. But we, we needed to have the white hack prepared because we couldn't really approach them because like then we would cause like more information leakage. Yeah, so there was still one vulnerable contract. We had um, yeah, NCG. Um, so that NCG auction was coming, and that was the only other active ETH MISO token auction. Luckily, it was closing in four hours. Um, by the time that we had resolved the BitDAO auction, there was maybe like two hours left for NCG. Wow. So it wasn't it wasn't just going to affect that that one that you had sort of found it for, but rather any that had already started at that point. Did you stop at that point, like the chance for anyone to like launch another one? Oh yeah, definitely. Like that's, that's the first okay. thing we told the PM was like, no more, no more launchy of auctions, yeah. please. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so like only ETH based auctions were vulnerable because it is like wrapped around this message dot value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we did have a concurrent one that's actually still running. That is another bit auction, but the sale is in sushi which is an ERC-20, so um, we're totally fine. But NCG, we kind of had to keep quiet even after we had accomplished what we needed to with BitDAO um, because the same vulnerability existed, although to a lesser extent, right? Like we're not talking about $350 million. We're talking about like eight, like something that like a sustain, a loss that Sushi could sustain. Mm-hmm. The other one is like the end. <laughs> There's an asteroid hitting the dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think uh if there had been losses that sushi would be responsible for those i i guess like the the question behind the question here is you know we we go through a lot of effort to try to get assurances on these contracts i know that you went through audits and i did some informal review of miso uh, and that multiple teams and individuals failed to catch this what is the right way to handle user losses in these sorts of situations? Because we obviously can't prevent them. Yeah, um, like we we had two audits and we had a formal verification, which like formal verification is supposed to be like a lot more like assuming that it's complete is supposed to be like robust. And then we had informal audits, right? We had people like review it. I wasn't going to blow you up, James, but yeah, like James like helped us like. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm yeah, happy yeah. to blow myself like, up. <laughs> even when we were talking to some of our auditors, some of them were like, hey, you know, s- sorry, we missed this. It was like, I mean, you know, so did we, right? So did everybody. But back to the question, which is like, how do you deal with one? I feel a sense of responsibility for that sort of stuff. Right. Like I would want there to be some amends. But, you know, the sushi treasury is much less than three hundred and fifty million dollars. So what do we do? Do we inflate all of sushi to to pay back these stolen funds or I, I just don't know. And so I think long term, this is this is it. Like everything in the world is vulnerable. 
That's why they have cybersecurity insurance. That's why you have car insurance. Even if it's self-driving, it doesn't matter, right? Like something, a tree can fall on it. Everything can fail in some sense. And so everything in this world is actuarial risk or memes. And <laughs> um, this is, this is you know, the, the former. Hmm. Do you think the space is going to move towards insuring this kind of risk in addition to getting audits? And what's the what's kind of the role of audits versus insurance in the future? I think audits and formal verification will be a way to to underwrite the insurance. Um, actually, I come from the insurance world. Worked at USAA for quite some while. Helped them build some blockchain things and some insurance things. And uh, the one thing that that our industry is too immature to know is that there's huge risk appetite in reinsurers. And so when I insure something reinsurers are like i break off like the most dangerous tranches and i sell them to reinsurers let's say that i have an umbrella policy for somebody that's like a million dollars right my my expected claims are probably going to be less than a hundred thousand dollars but that like one hundred thousand to a million one that one hundred thousand and one to a million those losses might put my insurance company out of business so what i do is that I, I break that risk off and I sell it to a reinsurer. And that's how I see it happening in the future. I even think like traditional reinsurers like Munich Re, Swiss Re, Lloyds of London, like I think that they'll they'll have appetite for this sort of thing, especially as expertise grows and we can put an affirmative actuarial risk around something. Mm-hmm. So the the main thing we're missing right now is maturity of the industry so we can understand the risk better and we can take that risk that we understand and uh, take it to reinsurers or the traditional insurance industry. Yeah, I think smart money will do that. And uh, this is something that I think a lot of platforms are asking for. And so this is probably the next actual DeFi primitive is insuring protocols as a whole. Because I would love for Sushi to be able to purchase coverage like for this Trident launch. I'm nervous as shit, you know, even though we're going to have so many, um, you know, audits, formal verifications, like code contests, like bounties. But like still, Mm -hmm. there's risk, right? And so like it would be better to offset that risk. Yeah. To to wrap up this story of this exploit, like... Has it all been resolved? You kind of mentioned you had the the different kinds of ways to mitigate it. Mm -hmm. But what do you do now with that? Yeah, so we're going to improve our contracts. The first thing that we're going to do is um, disallow ETH, maybe, or the, yeah, that's that's probably not a bad design. <laughs> um, but we should do post checks, and that this like kind of this virtual balance of what we say is there in ETH matches what is underlying in ETH. We should do that for all tokens. I think that that's like a revert check. But like, I don't think that's satisfactory enough, especially because we have encountered like some like intricacies that are not vulnerabilities per se about these contracts. And so we just don't feel confident in the set anymore. And so we're going to go through another audit as well as make some like our own internal review on top. Okay. So you're going to kind of like put the product on hold for a bit. Yeah. Or like pause the service in a way. We're not going to have any auctions until September. So we're going to we're going to have time to thoroughly review and make sure there aren't any additional vulnerabilities. Got it. A lot of DEXs right now are at least experimenting with L2s. 
There's a lot of dApps in general. A lot of DeFi projects are thinking of having kind of two instances, one on the main chain, one on the L2 chain. Sometimes people are like looking at even other EVM compatible chains to potentially deploy to what what is the strategy right now for Sushi? Yeah, sure. So we're taking this approach of going everywhere. Oh. And so we are one of the, you know, we're one of the first exes to deploy kind of on all these individual chains. We have a huge presence on Polygon, Phantom. We have deployments on OKEX, HECO, BSC, XDAI, Harmony, Avalanche, Celo, and Palm now. That's a lot of places. Yeah. So L2s are really not a big deal for us. The deployments are approximately the same as they are for our main chain. There is like a bit of fragmentation of liquidity, but our current understanding is that that liquidity is going to remain on that chain anyway. So it's not really Mm -hmm. a Mm. fragmentation of that liquidity. Yeah. We can't really avoid that, I think. There's a few missing from what you described. Like, for example, you're not like, unlike, and I know you, you've already said, don't compare us to Uniswap, but I'll do one last one. So they're, you know, they're also on optimism. You are not. I understand that there was some, something went down there. (laughs) Kerfuffle. Okay. Kerfuffle. Kerfuffle. Yeah. So, So what, what happened was we were excited about optimism. We, we really wanted to deploy there early. In fact, kind of like, I think I tweeted something to the effect of like, whatever the Genesis block is, will be, will be deployed in the next block. And so we helped them early on, like debugging some of their tooling um, that wasn't working, like being one of the first projects to deploy there. And we had worked on our deployment. It seemed ready to go. And we had a call with Optimism to say, hey, you know, we're ready to go. And they told us that we couldn't go until Uniswap deployed. And we weren't super happy about that, especially after we had like kind of worked on their platform and, you know, sometimes like you, one of the things you do is that you lend your credibility to these early projects and we're kind of lending them this credibility that I guess they just like, in my opinion, don't deserve. Um, we were getting ready to deploy and basically we had to stop so that their preferential partner, Uniswap, uh, could deploy who wasn't ready. We, we had to wait until they were ready. You know, that's nice, right? Like, but you know we're ready and we want to go and to assert the preference the the, the problem is is all around protocols actually like there's this idea of credible neutrality for operators they have to be credibly neutral because there's a lot of things that um, a sequencer or an operator or whatever you want to call it a block producer can do like transaction censorship etc like uh, unfavorable block ordering like censoring you know like there are just there's a ton of things that you can do yeah in that position and and so we we wanted to like if there's no credible neutrality there and the preference is like what if uniswap says we don't like sushi's contracts right like will you censor them like maybe they will and so we need a credible neutral actor and so that's why we're going to prefer arbitrum for our optimistic roll-up and we're going to take a wait and see approach to see if uh, optimism uh, succeeds. I think that there's, they have worse opcode coverage. They don't have an on-chain prover. There are a lot of issues there and Arbitrum seems ready to go and has really decent opcode support and leadership. So mm-hmm. I think we're going to prefer that. I think it's interesting that you bring up credible neutrality, um, which was introduced in a blog post by Vitalik a year and a half ago. 
Vitalik and Hayden from Uniswap and Carl from Optimism are all old friends. Do you think that this is a you know example of people not behaving neutrally uh, to you know favor their in-group, their friends? Yes, um, I say that with an asterisk because this has happened to us with another project that had investment from A16Z. We had a, a better deal for them and they were um, essentially coerced, I guess, into not launching on Sushi um, and preferential for Uniswap. Mm. Had that never happened, I, I wouldn't be so like whiny about it, but that did happen. And we lost um, a lot of TVL due to kind of like meddling of venture capital. And so my gut instinct on this, the first go was that like, this wasn't nepotism, that this is like something kind of orchestrated because you look at the ones that like optimism is a paradigm, A16Z investment, uh, synthetics is a paradigm, A16Z investment, Uniswap is a paradigm, A16Z investment. It's like, hmm, I see like, it doesn't take like, um, that much pattern matching to figure out what you think is going on here. Hmm. But like, I know even the names you just mentioned just recently, there was maybe not that recently, but there was some talk about like the Sushi DAO potentially, or there was a proposal to like give tokens to, I don't know if it was one of those VCs or like a bunch of VCs, these tokens at preferential prices. Was it in a way because like there's this feeling of disadvantage because you don't have one of these partners in a way in the ecosystem? Mm, Yes, I think that was the motivation. But I would say that I am against this deal. And I think I have come out from the start. Like there are so many like things wrong with it. Like introducing sushi into this idea of being a security, just like giving a gigantic discount to people that were probably going to market buy anyway. I just like I've never I've never been in love with this idea. Yeah. What happened to that? Is that still being considered or it didn't pass, did it? Uh, no, so it was just a proposal in the forum, and on a basis of our feedback from our legal team, like we're not going to move forward with that because it like introduces us into so much risk. Very interesting. You know, saying that you feel like you're at something of a disadvantage, and that you feel like the shared investors for these projects are one of the reasons they're giving each other preferential treatment. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel like there is an in-group in the Ethereum ecosystem that you're not part of? One hundred percent. Yeah even just like working on these research problems, like I'm coming from Ethereum research, right? Like Ethereum research.ch, right? Like this, this, where we all share information (laughs) and we collaborate because I was in, in protocols before. And so like, like, could you imagine if, if Vitalik worked on something and then like, didn't open source it or didn't make it like publicly available, try and make it proprietary. It is a really sad situation inside DeFi. I think. Isn't Vitalik a, uh, you know, notional contributor to Optimism and Uniswap? Uh, I mean, he came up with the idea of AMMs, right? Like, mm. that's that blog post. I mean, he came up with a lot of different ideas that he publishes in uh, E3 Search mm. and in his own blog. But I wouldn't lump him into that, like, excellent working on protocols with him. But, like, the the point I was making about, like, ETH research, research.ch, right, is this is this idea of like free and open uh, working space. I, I've tried to work on other like DeFi primitives that are coming out that interest me, like things that like Paradigm are working on, but their research is proprietary. And I'm kind of like boxed out because I'm like, quote unquote, a competitor. It's like, okay, then we'll fight in the dark or whatever, right? Like the, or fight in the shade. That's mm. what they say in uh, uh, 300. <laughs> yeah. It seems like for you, this is a 
kind of about the intersection between Ethereum and uh, Silicon Valley, the more traditional investment space. Totally. Yeah, I think so. And we're, we're moving towards um, a future where we're comfortable uh, letting go of decentralized ideas so long as it is financially beneficial for me. And that is just TradFi with blockchains. Yeah, I often get this feeling like I never wanted to work in finance. I don't like finance. I like this cool tech. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I feel the same way. I, I remember like sitting like in, in the car, I was with my wife. Uh, I just was like, you know what? I think I like economics. And she's like, I know. And I was like, <laughs> I thought I was a software developer all this time. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I don't know, because I feel like... I've been involved in this for seven going on eight years, and I feel like that's been the long-term arc of the space is away from decentralization and towards things that capture money. Let's push back against that. Like That idea seems really good for a business in a short-sighted sense, but misses the long-term idea that we wouldn't be here if, you know, good old Hodgkinson had his way and, and Ethereum was a business and he was the CEO, right? And if they had have like closed the source on one of the uh, clients, right? Or Linus Torvalds didn't give away Linux for us. It's like uh, Satoshi said, actually, I want to turn Bitcoin into a business, right? Like that, mm -hmm. if it wasn't for the, those kind of like pioneers, if we, we wouldn't exist here today. And I think that what you're building on top of the chain is, in some way like business proprietary like i have some bad news for you i think that there are a lot of people who are smarter than you who saw the incentives for being more collaborative mm. very interesting i think together we've gone on quite a journey from like last year's DeFi summer the episode that we had done to now and all of these products all of these developments for sushi but what's next what's happening in your world you'd mentioned like you're going to pause me so for now but like what else is on the, on the roadmap? What do you see next year looking like? I mean, we're rolling out products just like crazy. And so we're going to continue to improve what we have and roll out new products. We're going to continue to scale horizontally until we feel like we've approached, you know, critical mass in that sense, and then do better, like vertical on the product. We are going to finish up Trident. Then on the roadmap, we have some improvements that we would like to make to our existing platform. We want the UX to be kind of what I would describe as like normie friendly. Um, <laughs> and that requires us to enhance our gas relayers. Um, integration of the products together more tightly. Yeah, that's kind of like what's in the near term. Are you excited? Yeah, yeah. I, like I'm crazy excited about the future of sushi. That's the only thing that I, because it's stressful. You know, there's like, like I'm not. A billionaire and so i have like not billionaire problems um <laughs> so i i have you know wife and kids and like my normal life sushi is a, an immense amount of stress uh, at some moments and like that manifests itself sometimes in like crazy shit posting on twitter <laughs> but i wouldn't do it if it wasn't exciting for me i wasn't excited about the future yeah i can't i can't do anything that i'm not excited about do you think it's kind of like a hopeful project in a way Sushi, it's like you kind of talk about it. It's, it's, it's the antithesis of some of these trends. Yeah, I think by the end of this year, we'll be so differentiated from anything in the space that people say in hindsight it is inevitable. 
Um, in hindsight, <laughs> it will seem inevitable for sushi. Like, okay. Uh, props to Maki for like when the absolute darkest days came for sushi before I was even there that I likely would have given up. He kind of like stuck it out and kept it going. Right. And I really appreciate the kind of like fortitude. Cool. Well, Joe, it's uh, been a pleasure chatting with you as always. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show. I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Andre, the podcast editor, Henrik, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.